From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Heather Clancy bidding you hello from northern New Jersey. Joel McCower is in Amsterdam this week speaking at a circular economy conference. On this week's edition, a new type of funding for early stage climate tech startups, a fossil free steel push at Volvo, and why Audi of America placed responsibility for sustainability and government policy under the same executive. It's June 10th, 2022. Welcome to another edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me today as co-host is senior editor Jesse Klein. Congratulations on the promotion, Jesse. Thank you. She is zooming in from Oakland, California. And I wanted to start with just a quick question for you, Jesse, because you had a pretty eventful weekend. I understand you went to Mount Whitney, which I don't know a whole lot about, and you, I I think we've mentioned before in this podcast, you are a climber and you climbed Mount Whitney. Tell me about why you did that and what and what it was like. (laughs) Well, yeah, I guess climbing Mount Whitney is probably the right phrase, but it's more of a hike. It's not like using ropes and and climbing Mm -hmm. gear, but it's just a really long hike. It's Mount Whitney is the tallest mountain in the continuous U.S. It's 14,505 or 508, depending on what sign you're holding at the top. Um, feet tall, which is the tallest mountain in the continuous U.S. Um, it's a, you know, it's a, a lot of people do it over two days. I had to do it over one day because we could only get permits for one day, which meant starting on the trail at 3 a.m. and hiking in the dark with headlamps for a couple hours. Um, but it was a very long day and it, the air gets very thin at the top and you feel mm-hmm. your your heart beating real hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was mm-hmm. awesome and something I wanted to accomplish for a long time. So it was a, a good thing to for me to do and a good way to celebrate my, my promotion. <laughs> yeah. Is that the highest elevation you've ever climbed to? Yes. Um, I've done another 14er in Colorado for my birthday, for my 27th birthday a couple mm-hmm. years ago. But mm-hmm. besides that, mm-hmm. yeah. You're dating yourself. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> what's on the what's on the bucket list? Like what what do you what's next? I don't know. I don't know if peak bagging is really my thing, which peak is like bagging. What is peak that? Bagging. It means like people who try to climb all the 14ers in California okay. or like all the 14ers in Colorado. It's just not that pretty because you get above the tree line and then it's just kind of a bunch of rocks that aren't that pretty. So I don't know. I'll probably do it if somebody else wants to do something, but I don't think I'll ever make it my mission to climb mm-hmm. all the 14ers in California or something. <laughs> well, I know we probably should talk about work. So I'm going to ask you about something <laughs> that you handle. Uh, you've, you've started this year, I think one of our success, most successful columns ever. It's called Higher Learning, H-I-R-E, for those of you listening. And uh, folks, yes, we love puns. <laughs> we know Joel loves puns. No one does a pun like Joel. <laughs> Um, but I love this column. It has just such a wide variety of subjects. We had one out this week on how to evaluate um, you know, a sustainable business program. I would imagine anyone thinking about going back for an MBA might find it useful. But um, tell me about why you wanted to do this and what's coming up. 
Yeah, I think the reason that we I wanted to do this was, you know, GreenBiz has always talked to CSOs and CEOs, but with the sustainability profession becoming a lot more common, I wanted to start talking to people who are, you know, up and coming in the business or people who are starting their education or just entering the field and wanted to create a column that was really for them. Yeah, the the column that came out this week was called How to Evaluate Sustainable Business Programs. And it was by Sarah Maples, who's a lecturer at the Tippie College of Business at the University of Iowa. And she created this great guide for people looking to get into sustainability. It's super tactical. It lists very specific things that you can look for in different programs to decide what might be right for you. There's a bunch of other columns that we've done since I started it a couple months ago. Um, the ones, a couple of the ones that I really like are five things I learned being a sustainability consultant by Charlotte Bandy, which is, you know, sustainability consulting is a big profession and it's one of the ways mm -hmm. to jump into the industry. And it's an interesting one. And she outlined different things that she took away from the experience. Um, Prerana Tadokar at the Columbia, uh, getting her master's at Columbia in sustainability, did a really great reported piece called The Sustainability Job Market is Booming. What does that mean for hiring? And she talked to a bunch of people. She used the Green Biz, uh, you know, Green Jobs Sustainability Report to really, you know, see what's happening in the hiring market. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, we have a ton of others. I'll mention one by uh, Shannon Parker at CERC, which is the sustainability talent you're looking for. It's in your operations department. And in some ways, that's talking more. I to, really liked that one. Yeah, I like that one a lot. <laughs> in some ways, that's talking to like people like hiring, not so much the people mm -hmm. entering the sustainability world. But I think it applied to both because it kind of opens your mind to what could be a sustainability career. Um, I'm always looking for pitches. So if you have an idea for a story um, or a column for the higher learning uh, column, please pitch me. My email is jesse at greenbiz.com. Super plug for the future. So with that, let's uh, actually look back to the week in review. All right, I'll get us started with a story that I found very controversial, actually. It was what, as I was editing it, I... I challenged the writer, uh, our, our new transportation analyst, Vartan Bedalian, to really push on Volvo about what this claim meant. And it's it's the piece on our, our, our site called Behind Volvo CE's, quote, fossil-free, end quote, vehicle claim. So the company has been out there in the, in the marketing landscape talking about this fossil-free vehicle. And what Vartan does in this piece is he kind of really digs into what that means. In this particular instance, um, we're not talking about a car. We're talking about an articulated hauler, <laughs> which is basically a dump truck, a rock truck, some big, it's a big piece of heavy equipment. And the fossil-free claim actually applies only to the steel. Now, I should, I guess only is probably kind of a harsh word, but it is, I just want to be clear, it's it's a specific piece of the vehicle that is fossil-free. Uh, the, the steel was created by the Hybrid Alliance, which is part of a, an organization. Um, uh, one, of the, one of the partners in this is uh, SSAB. This is a Swedish steel manufacturer. It's part of the Hybrid Coalition. And so these, these companies, which we've actually written about, are working on a a type of low carbon steel, meaning that it's produced without the coal or the the um, fossil free fuel, uh, fossil fuels rather that usually are produced to usually used to make steel. So I'm curious, 
Jesse, what your take was on this. And we were all kind of debating it, I think, internally, like, what does this mean? You know, how, how much do we push it? You know, what do we put this in the headline? Did you put fossil free in the headline? You know, we did, by the way. Um, you know, what do you what did you think of this piece? Yeah, I mean, I think when you see fossil free and then you read the article and you see that very like obvious, you know, asterisk next to it, that it's just for the steel and not for the whole, you know, combustion engine. Um, but it, it does make, definitely raise red flags in your brain of just like, is this just a marketing ploy? But but the iron and steel industry is what we would call one of those hard to abate industries. You know, it's it's a very difficult industry to get fossil fuels out of. And it accounts for 11% of the global CO2 emissions. And so it's not it's not just a marketing claim in some ways, because that is a really important sector that we need to we need to decarbonize quickly, especially as our built environment grows and the need for cars grow. And especially for electric cars, you know, electric cars need steel as well. And if it doesn't really matter if they're electric, if we're using fossil fuels to build them. So in some ways, I think it's fair. I do think fossil free maybe they should have used a, a little bit of a different term to, to keep from those eyebrows raising, but I think it, it's definitely important. And this is actually the second Volvo mm-hmm. model to use fossil-free steel. Um, apparently nine months ago, Volvo unveiled the world's first fossil-free machine, which was an all-electric autonomous load carrier for use in mining and quarrying. So this is something that they're investing in and they're you know slowly building up. And I think the idea of creating a fossil-free vehicle that uses a combustion engine is, you know, just another check mark on the way to creating an entirely yeah. fossil free vehicle, yeah. vehicle car. Yeah, the, the distinction I think here is that this one was actually delivered to a customer. And that was the big um, sort of, um, you know, it's a commercial vehicle. And out, I think that was important to your point about, yeah, you do need the steel this low carbon steel in vehicles that are still going to have internal combustion engines that still run on probably diesel or whatever. Um, I think that, I mean, it does underscore the fact that we do need these kinds of milestones, if you will, in in the in along the way to fully electrified vehicles. So, cool I was pro- going to say baby steps, but milestones is much nice. Oh, is much nice. <laughs> baby milestones, baby milestones. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Anything else to say about this guy? Um, yeah, I don't think so. Think. <laughs> Um, but I read your column called Funding Underrepresented Climate Tech Founders. I actually edited this for the uh, for the Climate Tech Newsletter. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about from your perspective about what's going on with with the money, the money models, <laughs> money models. Yeah, money. Follow the money. So I, I wrote this week about two new programs. One is from the Los Angeles Clean Tech Incubator, and the other one is from a startup, a financing startup called Enduring Planet. And what both of these programs have in common is that they're both focused on very early stage climate tech startups, and they are both what you would call a revenue-based financing program. So in other words, instead of having to put up a lot of collateral, a lot of um, equity, like instead of having to give away a lot of their company, the founders can apply for these loans that are paid back and and sort of pegged to their revenue streams. So they, they know that these are companies that have some kind of customer base already. They're producing sales. Um, and, you know, so that's like an interesting thing because number one, it's just a different model, right? So, and it really applies to companies and especially companies that can't usually get into the the regular venture capital game. So we know that uh, the venture capital community right now 
and this is a larger number, this isn't just specific to climate tech, but just, you know, as an example, just 2% of all the venture capital funding last year in 2021 went to women. 2%. And then you think about this number, 1.2%, less than that in the first half of last year went to black founders. And that they don't, we don't have a gender number on that one. But I mean, that's just really abysmal. And so if you think about all the great work that's happening in the climate tech community with a lot of wonderful founders from black communities, from indigenous communities, from other communities from, you know, around the world, we need funding mechanisms to to help. And that this these two, two programs are actually both specifically catering to underrepresented founders. So they both make a point of looking at that as criteria um, as they evaluate the loans. And so that's the other reason I, I thought this was a particularly compelling thing to work about. I mean, I will say the downside, you know, I'll just point out these are, this isn't, they're not very big funds. There's, we're talking like 11, I think it's 11 million combined or something between these two programs, which is not very much, but it's a start. And there's some really good examples of, of companies that have been uh, funded by these programs already. So one example is a company called Spark Charge. That's one that's funded by the the Lacey, the 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 Los Angeles clean tech incubator. Um, and they're working on basically on de- on demand mobile electric vehicle charging stations. Um, and there's another company that's that's gotten some money um, through a pilot of this called Envoy. And so they're basically providing rideshare from electric vehicles through rideshare programs specifically for low-income communities. So two models that typically wouldn't be uh, recognized by the the venture capital world. What did you take away from this? Yeah, another little snag from it is that they have to be having sales. So this wouldn't really work for a company that is deep in research. And and sometimes with climate tech, you know, there, especially something with like carbon removals, like there is going to be a lot of R&D work that needs to be done. So something like this might not work for them. But that's why we want to have a lot of different funds so that different companies can can, you know, access different types of money. And and that would be the goal. Yeah. And I actually want to point out that the the Lacey program, again, um, they've been piloting this with the Department of Energy. So they went from a small pilot to now what's what's supposed to be kind of a national program. So they're working with a couple of other incubators or so Greentown Labs, Evergreen Climate in- Innovations and uh, New-, New Energy Nexus are also participating, like climate startups from those organizations are also participating or can apply. But the Department of Energy link, I think is interesting because we know there's a lot of good grant programs and funding coming in for clean tech. So this could kind of provide the you know, the entree from the research world into that revenue world. And I think that part, it's probably part of the reason that DOE was involved with the pilot. So yeah, I think it's a cool program. I was happy to to be able to um, talk to the people behind it and it, it's inspiring for me. And so with that, I'll take us over to our last story because it has to do with one concept that's part of those financing models, which is the notion of environmental justice, it, of making sure that communities that typically haven't been part of the sustainability dialogue are part of it and are are part of the programs and and initiatives that are being stood up by large corporations to address sustainability so the idea that these things are that should should be intersecting so corporate sustainability should be intersecting with with corporate environmental justice policies it was written by terry yossi one of our regular columnists who does the values proposition column he's his background is in uh government work and a lot of 
economic experience and and with 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 respect to that he's the used to be the at world environment center but also has a long government career but i think for me one of the big things that i liked about this article in particular was that it it started making those you know started really pointing to the places where you could marry these two policies in a better way and one of them i thought was in terms of the governance right so like and i'm just going to pick this one because i it's been kind of in the the news a lot but how you collaborate with external communities to understand the the needs of those communities um how you you are addressing things like capital expenditures you know how this this gets layered into those considerations so how do you put how do you embed environmental justice into a company's governance policies and how do you make sure that it's part of those strategies that to me seems like a really good place to start because because if you're going to open let's just take a opening a factory right it's something that companies do all the time how do you think about where you're going to put that you know in in the past you might have picked a community based on you know simply it's cheap here now you're going to need to look at what's the air pollution here what's the community here what are the, what's the job potential for a community here you know what could we do in this area so i think to me that was one of the areas that it's kind of subtle but if you embed that sort of thing into this decision making process it's a it's a good lever for change what what jumped out at you in this sort of philosophical <laughs> this large philosophical question that we talk about a lot here actually on the editorial yeah, team yeah i mean I think what you mentioned about the the factories kind of got my brain going um, as like the food reporter. A big thing is like the, where the indoor food companies put their indoor, um, their like indoor warehouses. Like that's a big thing mm-hmm. for a bunch of them of like, you know, picking places that might have food deserts or might need, um, you know, more jobs and because of transitioning out of older style jobs. So, but I think what, something that jumped out to me was his, his fifth point, which is values-based political engagement. I think, mm. you know, as a millennial growing up in this, time there's sometimes a bit of cynicism about political engagement from companies it feels like maybe they're you know donating to both sides so that no matter what happens they've got a friend on the inside and i think like he's right in that in order to engage uh you know an employee who's thinking about things in terms of sustainability or esg or environmental justice the companies need to be engaging on politics on you know on a values-based way not just on a like let's cover all our bases way and you know mapping every political engagement that they have, whether that's lobbying or donating or just talking to a senator based to like what their actual company values are. Um, so I think that was super interesting to me and something that like I hadn't really thought about in such, um, you know, disparate turns before. I think your perspective there is really interesting. And I want to ask you, like, if if you see a company donating on the one hand to everyone, right, just for for whatever reason, maybe that's the corporate policy to donate to every type of person that's running for a, a, an office and then you see them having strategies on certain things like they let, let's just say they're donating over here and then they're actually working on policies like specifically out you know like the Disney examples one in the story you know how how they were behind the scenes um you know trying to to shape this this law in Florida um and and it and they didn't really talk about that externally and they there were where their money trail was was pointing to different places so how is that what is that what gets you cynical or yeah I think I'm just curious yeah I think that's part of it I think there's like a little bit of like have your cake and eat it too mentality mm-hmm. of like we're gonna do do everything but and I also just think for the companies it 
it's a, a it's a place where they're vulnerable. Like if you're donating to everybody, it, like any any good journalist can go into their like you know into their money levers and point out, and it just becomes bad press for you. So you might as well just stick with your values and keep donating to the things that matter to you and not donating to the other side so that you have a better story to tell and you're not so vulnerable when a journalist comes and looks at what you're doing. But in some cases, I also see the other side where it's just like, if maybe you can have the ear of another of both sides and be able to force a sustainability plan or a progressive plan because you do have the influence on both sides. So you want to be able to have a toe in each side so that you have the ability to make impact no matter who's elected. So it's hard. I mean, this is just corporate America. It's hard. <laughs> <laughs> there's one there's two one uh, two other things I'd like to just bring up here. One is that your 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 previous comment got me thinking about the whole argument on on whether you pull entire like whether an investment firm should pull entirely out of oil companies and energy companies um, or whether they should keep their money in those companies and force them to accelerate their transitions. Like if you're if you're not at the table as a stakeholder, how do you change the dialogue and how do you change the policy? And I, you know, that we're not going to go down that path right now, but that's just that argument and that whole that whole perspective I think is super relevant as well. One of the other things in in Terry's articles I found really interesting was was his suggestion about how you use science to start collecting more information about like the places where you're trying to think about having operations. So like using digital technologies to understand pollution, to understand the health and environmental effects, like really getting a better handle on using science to inform company policies. Like I don't I don't know how often, like I, I actually can't even think of a single company that that's told me, hey, you know, we're investing in this satellite technology because we want to understand around the world what the pollution, you know, is in these different areas, what the the job scenarios are, you know, what the fossil fuel mix, fuels mix is to, in order to like, let's go into this community and invest here. Let's address this community first because they really need the strategy, you know, first in, in terms of like all of the different stressed areas of the world. I think we do it a little bit in water maybe right now. Like I, a lot of the water strategies we hear about are very focused on science um, around, you know, that's where people are starting. Um, but I liked the the mention of science as a as a foundation for this as well. Yeah, I think I also have heard of a couple companies with air um, air pollution sensors that are coming mm -hmm. up and like putting them on cars and having them in low income area areas. So I think there's also there's some startups in the space as well that are maybe using that could be that companies could use to kind of inform their their policies on that front. Corporate climate lobbying activities are coming under closer scrutiny by investors, employers, customers, and other stakeholders. While government affairs concerns typically sit outside the purview of chief sustainability officers, Audi of America has combined these roles into one position. That title is held by Spencer Reeder, Director of Government Affairs and Sustainability. Trained as a chemical and aerospace engineer, Spencer previously directed the climate and energy portfolio for the Paul Allen Philanthropies at Vulcan Inc. He has been with Audi of America for about three years. Welcome, Spencer. Thank you for having me. It's super important to have you here. I, I love your title. And I'm wondering, you know, let's just start with a pretty simple question. Why do you think it's important for companies to consider climate strategy and government policy strategy side by side? 
Well, I think you stated it from the outset that it's not common. And I think, as, as you also noted, this whole sense of advocacy within the corporate world has come under scrutiny. Uh, I think justifiably so uh, for a host of reasons. And listen, I think Daniel Weissland, who's the president of Audi of America, deserves a lot of credit for seeing the opportunity here. I started out running government affairs as a person that came from the climate science community and been working on environmental issues for a long, long time in my career. Uh, and so it was sort of implicit in the role as, as head of government affairs that I was bringing that kind of view into the work. But Daniel Weisland, who I was reporting to at the time, looked at this and said, well, listen, why don't we make it formal that you are also running our sustainability work here at Audi of America? And I think that formalization was really an important signal uh, to everybody that Audi was taking the alignment between our policy advocacy and our sustainability goals quite seriously. So you actually started in government affairs and added the sustainability role to your function. And it was more of a it was more of an informal role from the beginning that I was working on sustainability issues. Out of America didn't have a formal chief sustainability officer or that role. So it was more that there was a bit of uh, adjustment as we took on sustainability more as a core function and uh, formalized that position. So it, it was a natural evolution to the work I was already doing there. But again, I think from the external signal that it sends, it was quite significant. So you mentioned that there were some factors where you think there, there's a really big alignment. What, you know, can you give me a couple of examples of why this needs to be more wedded, particularly for a car company? Well, the industry obviously is going through upheaval and, and great transformation in the moment. And, and for all the sort of right reasons, I mean, there's been a recognition dating back, you know, more than more than a decade, of course, people knew transportation was a key key issue to address to confront the climate change uh, crisis and, and the imperative of reducing emissions. But I think it was February of 2016 when transportation became the number one source of greenhouse gases in the United States, surpassing the electricity sector, which had long been back, dating back to the 1970s, the lead source of greenhouse gas emissions. So I think there was, you know, certainly a, a growing recognition that that we collectively, those of us that wanted to confront the climate change problem had to take transportation much more seriously and it had to be the principal area of focus uh, for, for a whole host of reasons. And it, it's been difficult, right, to confront that. Um, so I think in our industry, it's just not really an option anymore. If you're going to be a company forward looking, I think open and honest about the climate change imperative. Uh, Audi was one of the first automakers in the world to recognize the importance of the Paris Climate Agreement and, and make public statements in support of those goals. Uh, so, so I think this is very much in alignment with what the company was already doing. Um, and listen, whether or not other companies choose to follow suit, uh, it's up to them. But I think Audi is certainly on the right path by really forcing that alignment more explicitly. Now, I want to just step back even farther and just ask this question about the structure. So you're Audi of America. Does Audi writ large, the global organization, have a similar structure? I mean, is there a, do you have a counterpart at the global level? Is this particular organizational contract specific to the, to the American operations? Well, I mean, listen, we don't, we don't sort of mix our public affairs or government affairs between what's happening in Europe and the U.S. So mm -hmm, for, mm -hmm. for both structural and legal reasons, we, we don't mix those. We certainly 
have conversations across the Atlantic about what our objectives are. And certainly everything that I'm advocating for originates in southern Germany, where Audi headquarters is located. Uh, and frankly, even in the European con context, Audi is really leading and driving a lot of the sustainability measures that the industry is adopting. Uh, but we're also part of the Volkswagen Group. And if you hear our CEO, Herbert Dies, if you hear Marcus Stussman, who's the CEO of Audi, uh, speak to these issues, they are very much aligned. So while there may not be a perfect analog in terms of the way the government affairs are handled in Europe, it's a different kind of animal over there. Um, I think it's very much consistent with how our leadership views our advocacy positions on all of these issues. Uh, my colleagues in the government affairs team at Volkswagen also take very much a forward-leaning position on these issues. Uh, that is, again, a reflection of the corporate philosophy that, that we've yeah. adopted recently. So can you give me an example of a policy in the U.S. that your, your team supported uh, that was sort of, out, sort of out front on the climate issue? Sure. I, I think probably the most prominent example, and there, there are a few, uh, was back in uh, late 2018, early 2019, when the Trump administration was proposing to roll back uh, corporate fuel economy standards, look at flatlining the greenhouse gas improvements in the industry. And we, at that point, uh, and it was not just Audi, obviously, it was, it was our brothers and sisters at Volkswagen. We sat down with the state of California and we said, listen, we're, we're not interested in going backwards here. We've made public commitments, uh, again, in support of the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, very ambitious targets for our electrification strategy. We want to continue to lean forward on this. We'll work with you in spite of sort of what some may be viewed as an opportunity to weaken the standards at the federal level. We committed voluntarily, along with three other automakers, to work with California to adhere to the, to the more difficult standards, because that was consistent with where we know we needed to go as a company. And that played out quite favorably, I think, for us, because it kept us in a consistent trajectory in terms of where we're heading, even though we did come under scrutiny from the Department of Justice at the time. Uh, there was a lot of uh, gnashing of teeth and wringing of hands in terms of what risk we might be assuming there. But we had, I think, the certainty and felt relaxed about the fact that we were doing what we needed to do. And, you know, we were going to contend with, with whatever the ramifications of that decision were. And as it turns out, you know, that clearly was, was the right thing to do for all the reasons that maybe are obvious and not as obvious. Um, it kept us focused on, on the prize and, and where we were heading as a company. Yeah, I have a couple other specific topics I want to get to, but just one final thing here which is, in, in, I'm glad you brought up your Volkswagen brethren, because the time the company was was dealing with some reputational challenges, you know, based on the past. And how do you think that this work has has reinforced your new strategy, your your evolving and your strategy and your credibility in this space? I think it was foundational. I mean, it was a moment in time where we could have gone with the rest of the industry and said, okay, maybe maybe. The, the stringency of these programs can can be relaxed a bit. It'll make it easier on us. And again, a credit to uh, all of the leadership in Audi and Volkswagen, uh, all the way back across the Atlantic again, because they were all involved in that decision. It, it was there was some risk involved, but really there was never any doubt which way we were going to go. Partially because of the the recent history. I mean, I joined after those those challenges around the diesel crisis, um, but but I think that was certainly in, in folks' memory and informed the commitment that we were willing to make and the risk we were willing to take there. Um, and, and there was really never a dissenting voice. There was some 
you know, just like any business, what are the risks in doing this? Uh, how durable would this agreement be in various scenarios? But in the end, there was really not a dissenting voice about where we needed to go across the entire uh, group. Mm-hmm. So an, another controversial topic right now in this, this whole space is trade association membership, right? Because we know that many well-meaning companies might have things that they're doing over here. However, um, their trade associations that they belong to may be supporting policies that are counter to the climate mission. So how, do, how does Audi of America manage that, that very difficult challenge of, you know, making sure that your trade associations are not, I don't know if the word right word is adhering, but at least that they represent where your company wants to go. Well, here again, we're not encumbered by our trade association. Um, I mean, to give them credit where credit's due, they've moved a far distance from where they were five years ago, let's say, on, on many of these issues. And if you look at the auto industry trade association, um, they've, they've come a far, far away. You know, they're, they're advocating for electric vehicle infrastructure investments for support of, of, of many of the policies. Um, of course, they, they have a perspective uh, on some of the details, of course, as you'd expect. But again, we're not encumbered to always adhere to what the rest of the industry is doing. And, and the California framework, again, to return to that example, is a perfect example where we diverged from the industry and we felt the freedom, uh, again, as part of the Volkswagen Group, to chart our own course on that particular issue. And I think we'll continue to do that uh, if the industry isn't being forward-leaning enough on these uh, environmental issues where we think that's sort of core to our DNA as a company moving forward. We're going to continue to articulate what our vision is and move forward in that direction. So, so in as much as these trade organizations need to represent the entire industry, there's going to be some areas where we'll have to diverge and continue to do so. Uh, I think it's of everyone's benefit where they can stick together on some of these issues and move the entire industry forward. And so we certainly uh, want to see the industry move in a direction that's consistent with the Paris Climate Agreement and advocate um, as such internally. But, uh, you know, it, it's the dynamic's going to be there. And I think that's the case in many trade organizations that represent broad industries. There's You can have various elements of those organizations that want to lead and push the envelope and, and some that do not. And uh, that's, that's the way it is, right? Now, another policy area that, that you know, there's always a will they or won't they uh, question around is, is carbon tax, carbon price, whatever, however you want to describe it. And there's various mechanisms that people propose and, and discuss a lot. And, and, you know, around that, there are a number of companies, a growing number of companies that have set an internal price on carbon um, to prepare for this or to understand, you know, how this might affect their business moving forward. forward. Your organization is one company that has done this. And I think it's like one of the only automakers, or if not the only automaker that I can think of that has done this. So I know you were instrumental in this, doing this. We talked about a little bit earlier, um, this year, how did you get it done and, and how has it helped your agenda? Uh, it, it's such a fascinating story. You're right. I mean, I, I brought this concept to Out of America from just my exposure to the, to the topic, having worked on climate policy and, and government and elsewhere, um, and knowing how important this uh, price in carbon is, right? Uh, internalizing the externalities, as, as those of us in the business call it. And it's really fundamental, and I'm a big believer in the power of, of carbon pricing. Unfortunately, it's been difficult to implement in the U.S. at a broad scale. You know, ideally, we want it economy-wide. But short of that, uh, there is the opportunity for business to implement an internal carbon price. And there's different forms, right? There's a shadow price that, that features into a business 
case decision making. We chose an explicit fee that we would actually charge ourselves, the actual movement of money. It was based largely on a program that Microsoft had developed uh, quite a while ago. I, coming from the Seattle area, knew many of the people at Microsoft that were running their internal carbon price programs. So we were able to crib off the good work that they had done, actually brought some of their folks in to, to brief our leadership team around Microsoft's experience with an internal carbon price and really our modeling. We're, we're a little over a year into it now. We're modeling our program very closely on the Microsoft program. Uh, and again, we, it's the business, right? Businesses make decisions based on finance, based on revenue, based on cost. And uh, so it, it already in the, in the short time that we've been running it and we're just applying it to corporate travel right now, we've seen a great conversation and just an awareness, right? So we're excited, uh, again, following Microsoft's path here to expand the scope of our internal carbon price. Uh, we chose a very, I think, bold number, $200 a ton, uh, which is multiple multiples higher than the, the social cost of carbon that was developed under the Obama administration, which we think is probably the gold standard still for how to think about carbon pricing uh, writ large. So, you know, again, here's an instance where our president, Daniel Weisland, looked at the opportunity. Uh, we had a few conversations on it, talked to the leadership team, and got very quickly convergence and support for implementing this. Uh, and I think the key there was, you know, our CFO was was all behind it. I mean, he understood immediately what the role of a carbon price might be in terms of even just a cost savings measure and giving people pause when they're making a transatlantic flight reservation that, wow, I'm going to pay this additional carbon fee that's going to go into a sustainability fund. Uh, maybe I need to think about my overall travel budget here and, and maybe I can do a video call. So we expect to see, uh, though, untangling the travel behavior from what COVID has, uh, you know, sort of introduced in the whole travel equation is going to be tricky and probably require a few more years to uh, disaggregate the effects of COVID from the carbon price. Uh, we're fairly bullish on what we think this carbon price will do for our behaviors. And again, it creates this internal funding mechanism where we can bootstrap and fund other CO2 reducing activities internally, which we think is this really wonderful virtuous circle uh, that's created when you do an internal carbon press. So one last question for you before I let you go. And that is just, you know, I know there's a lot of companies that they would love to maybe combine these roles, but that's not necessarily going to happen. So how would you, what advice would you give to a sustainability chief or, you know, the, the head of sustainability for a company in and better engaging with, with their director of government affairs? You know, what, what, how would you say they should um, engage and be involved with that, with that position? Well, I think, you know, I think it starts with the actual leadership. So whoever the president and CEO might be, that person, I think, needs to define how those two functions interact if they, if they choose not to combine them. Um, and, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's not always uh, the best approach to combine them, but I think in our case, it's working out. Um, but it does, I think, require the leadership team, including whoever the CEO or president is, to really force that issue. I, I think it does start at the top uh, to ask for evidence of how these two areas are aligned. And if there is an alignment to referee alignment, um, I think that's probably the most uh, efficacious way of, of implementing this. And uh, yeah, if you can find somebody that can fill both roles, even better. Great. Well, thanks for your time. Well, thank you. No, it's a pleasure to talk about these issues. And uh, thank you. 
You just heard from Spencer Reeder, Director of Government Affairs and Sustainability for Audi of America. As Heather said at the beginning, uh, I'm here in Amsterdam this week doing uh, all things circular, uh, including speaking at the uh, Circular Shift 2020 put on by the Cradle to Cradle Institute. And uh, here with me is uh, another Heather, uh, Heather Barker from the consumer products company Reckitt. Uh, Heather, you have the most interesting title, so I'm not going to get it right, but talk about what you do. Happy to do so. It is a long title, Joel. I'm the Global Vice President of Regulatory and New Growth Platforms at Reckitt. So, so let's pause on that for a second. Regulatory and New Growth, how do those fit together? I like to say in regulatory, we're not a cost center, we're an advantage center. So one of the things me and my team do every day is we, we try to predict the future, not easy but we set the company up for future resilience by better ingredients, better packaging before regulatory change. So that's where we bring the value creation and growth for our company. So getting ahead of the regulators and in effect doing it your way, what does that get you? Gets us a lot of things. I mean, it's so much better to have that innovative design, a circular design right up front, rather than this constant churn of reformulating, a regulation change comes we need to go back and reformulate the product. So we're trying really hard to get it right up front and to future-proof the company. So one of the things you talked about on the panel that, that I moderated earlier today was, was the war on chemicals and, and chemophobia. Uh, talk a little bit about what that is and how that manifests itself at record. You make cleaning products and personal care products and nutrition mm -hmm. products. Uh, how does that fit in and, and how does it affect how you think about what you make and do? Yeah, I, I often say the war on chemicals, and it, it's coming from a couple of different lenses. First, from the regulatory and policy point of view, most regulatory changes that we're seeing now are changes to ingredients, ingredient bans, restrictions, so on and so forth. Plus, we also have a lot of fear out there. Most people do not have a high-level degree in chemistry. Chemical names, let's be honest, are scary. And when you know, the media or you know, social media in particular starts talking about chemicals, they're not talking about it in terms of exposure or dose or all of the real meaningful risk. They're just saying this chemical is bad and it could kill you. So we're seeing this impacting our brands each and every day. So and we've got a lot of networking reception here behind us, hence the, the noise. I thought they were supposed to be in a different room, but they seem to want to be here where we are. Um, how does that affect uh, how you think about your products, particularly when you develop new products or refresh old ones? Yeah, so this, you know, again, trying to get this future resiliency by not making a regrettable choice, whether it's on a fragrance component, a surfactant, a polymer, we're trying to predict the future and say, let's choose this substance now ahead of regulatory change. But the challenge is it has to be efficacious, it has to be safe, it has to end up with a product that will delight the consumer. That's what makes it really challenging. And it has to be affordable too. You can't charge charge 2x for something that used to be x. Um, so where does cr uh, the cradle to cradle certification, you have one product so far that's certified a, a dishwashing detergent called Finish. And um, 
Uh, where does that fit in in terms of the chemophobia? Uh, does that enable you to wring out some of the nasties? It goes hand in hand with what we're doing internally. Again, with this thinking circular, sustainable by design upfront. So we're learning as we go. As we go through a certification process, we're learning actually maybe this choice is better than that choice for a type of product. What would be really great is if we started to share this, this knowledge more broadly uh, across the sector, across industries, so that really our formulators, our scientists, they get those guardrails up front. They know which way to go and maybe which way not to go. It becomes easier for you if Henkel is doing this, if Procter & Gamble, Unilever are doing these same kinds of things. Uh, is there an effort to do that? How, how do you, you know, sort of get those kinds of strength in numbers? It's a great question. I hope that's where our industry will go. We're not there yet. We're still competing, let's be honest. But our products, our formulations are very similar. And so I hope in time we are all on the sustainable journey. I hope in time we as an industry can come together and share the knowledge, share the formulation secrets, you know, what works well, what doesn't. It'll, it'll all benefit from it. Let's talk a little bit about the, the one product that you have certified, uh, again, the Finnish uh, dishwashing detergent. What, how does a detergent or any cleaning products become cradle to cradle? What does that even mean? And what do you do to it to uh, earn that certification? It's, it's end to end. So it starts with the ingredients, um, it continues to the packaging, how we manufacture it, our raw material suppliers, our full supply chain, which is posing some interesting challenges for us, I'll be really honest. Um, I have an example from Finnish, of course, uh, where we now have the certified product and it specifies the suppliers of particular raw materials. Well, right now we've been facing so many shortages, we realize we're being bound, we cannot make those changes that we used to as a result of the certification. So again, we're learning as we go. Our next certification, we're gonna build in more flexibility, realizing that the supply chain challenges are, are real and not going to go away. So is the goal eventually to have all of your products certified in some fashion, cradle to cradle or some other certification? Yeah, so for all of our products that are eligible, so we're starting with Finish, we're now expanding it into Harpic, which is a toilet cleaning uh, brand, a bathroom brand, Woolite, Lysol, Dettol, we're, we're carrying it on through. Some of our brands, like Airwick, which are heavily fragranced, they're not eligible, but for all of our brands that are eligible, that is our ambition. Great, well, we'll look forward to watching that. Uh, Heather Barker from Reckitt uh, here in uh, Europe, and in, you're based in London, I think, right? I'm based in Amsterdam. In Amsterdam? Oh, you're based right here. Okay, good. We can probably see your office from up here. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Joel. Good to see you. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 for our weekly episode rundowns. Hit us up by email at the address 350 at greenbiz.com. We'd love to hear from you. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention our newsletters. We have seven of them and you can find them by going to greenbiz.com slash newsletters hyphen subscribe. And you'll see all of the ones that you can get right now at that link. Thank you to Jesse Klein for stepping in to co-host. I'll be back next week with Joel McCower. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Heather Clancy. Take care and be well. Be well.